You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Paff joined by Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, the UK's push for energy efficient homes made of mud and straw. No, it's not the three little pigs, we'll explain. This week's Weird Wednesday includes Naked Man Festival. Yes, you heard that right. An update on the Florida Man Games, Lost Money, and another Guinness World Record. Why wouldn't we have one of those? And this day in history, the first TV appearance for basketball. Coming up, it's cool stuff. In the UK, one developer is attempting to make homes made of earth-based products like mud and straw a thing again. And now he has a model home to show off when making that pitch. Per the Good News Network story, architect Anthony Hudson used a centuries-old construction method to build the bungalow, yet it still complies with modern building regulations. Its walls, erected in Fakenham, Norfolk, are constructed from three simple ingredients, hemp straw, earth, and water. And by earth, we mean soil. When mixed together, it's known as cob. So the project was named the Cobb Baj. Now, I had to look this up because I'd never heard of Cobb before. Per everyone's favorite source, Wikipedia, Cobb is a natural building material made from subsoil, water, fibrous organic material, typically straw, and sometimes lime. In Wales, it's also referred to as clom. You know, you might be thinking to yourself, isn't that adobe? Well, the two materials are most certainly similar, but they obviously originated in different parts of the world. Per Utilities One, cob is typically a mixture of clay, sand, and straw, while adobe typically consists of more sand and less clay. Both mixtures are inexpensive, readily available, and easy to work with, making them popular choices for construction projects in regions where natural resources are abundant. And what better way to justify the use of that material than to point to other older buildings that are still going strong? Mud is obviously one of the most sustainable construction materials on Earth, with some of these old cob buildings in Britain lasting more than 500 years. This recent three-bedroom project from Hudson Architects was built by local builders, Grocott and Murfitt in January and was characterized as being quite inexpensive, although the total cost was never actually revealed. It's also worth noting the home is insulated to modern standards, so you're not getting an inferior home here. The home is part of a larger EU-funded project to bring mud construction into the 21st century with a focus on net-zero carbon construction, and this is their first regulations-compliant Cobb building. When the EU announced it was looking for architects to conceive of new ways to build homes using materials from the earth, Mr. Hudson jumped at the opportunity. Quote, the challenge was to create a home using earth as the primary building material, but which could also be thermally insulated. Earth is a very sustainable way to build, especially because it's so widely available here in the UK. End quote. The biggest challenge now is figuring out a more efficient way to build these homes. While the materials are relatively cheap, the methods needed to create an actual house require a great deal of labor. Per Hudson, quote, although the materials are cheap and easy to source, the building method is very time consuming. At the moment, it all has to be done by hand, so labor costs run high, end quote. That would seemingly indicate we have a ways to go before these homes become, quote unquote, mainstream. And for what it's worth, this isn't the first time in more modern history that Earth-based homes have been a part of a developer push. The other challenge here is convincing prospective buyers they're equal, the homes that is, they're equal in quality to their 
their more traditionally built counterparts. With houses typically representing a sizable investment for people, they'll obviously want to know their place is built to last and will appreciate in value the same way other homes would. So the next step would seemingly be to figure out how to efficiently duplicate building techniques and cut down on the intensity of the labor. Hudson believed the building method will be very attractive once that's all established. Now, if you're interested in learning more or are considering a home built from Cobb, and you happen to live in the UK, of course, in March, the mud house, using air quotes here, will be open to the public for viewing. So, Reg, I think this is a difficult question to pose to anyone unless you're actually faced with this situation, but... Do you think you would consider a home made of mud if you were looking to be maybe a first-time buyer or to upgrade to something a little more earth-friendly? Well, I'm going to go with the fact that I think technically we still have some earth-based homes. Uh, when you look at concrete, it's sand, gravel, water with cement mixed in. Isn't that kind of earth-based? Well, sure. You could you could make an argument for that, no doubt. But I think just from a technical standpoint, I think they're they're looking at things that can be harvested directly from the ground in this case. And um, yeah, I know what you're getting at. But in this instance, soil is going to be far more readily available and have less of a you know process to go through to be built up. Part of me feels like it really depends on how well does it stand up against natural disasters? Like obviously a clay house may not burn as easy as you know your typical wood and drywall type house or uh, maybe does it stack up against a tornado better than your typical house or a hurricane it kind of depends on that if you think this would hold up better against natural disasters then yeah i'm all in so let me ask you this then and it sounds like you just sort of answered this but if the cost being equal for a more traditionally built home versus a home built of cob or some other earth-based material you would not have an aversion to buying the earth-based home, assuming that was the one that you preferred in style and you know all these other variables. To me, I'm practical. As long as it can hold up and it is a better function, I don't have an issue with it. If it's just for the sake of using earth-based, no. It has to be better quality for me. To Reggie hates the earth. That's the moral of this story. That, so moving on, <laughs> Reggie says, forget about this planet. I don't care. I'm going to Mars. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, it's our favorite day of the week, I think. It's a time for Weird Wednesday. We're heading off to Japan to start Weird Wednesday. After 1,000 years, the Naked Man Festival is coming to an end. I Thank will. God. <laughs> I don't even know what it is yet, and I'm happy it's ending. The Somensai Festival involves hundreds of men in loincloths as they gather at a temple in Japan to wrestle for ownership of a bag of blessed talismans. Oh, that old story. You got to love the classics. <laughs> so, the festival is more than a thousand years old and takes place every year on the seventh day of the Lunar New Year. However, the chief priest of the temple announced that this year's event, which was held over the weekend, will be the last because, quote, the decision is due to the aging of individuals involved in the festival and the shortage of successors. While efforts were made to continue the festival to the best of our abilities, 
In order to prevent last-minute cancellations or disruptions in the future, the decision to cancel the festival itself has been made, end quote. This year's winner went to a 49-year-old local resident. He said that, quote, It is sad the festival is ending. I participated in hopes that it would be a memorable festival, end quote. So no more Naked Man Festival for you, uh, Marcus. You can't head out to uh, Japan and try to take part. I'm sure this is near and dear to a lot of folks' hearts, so I don't mean to make light of it necessarily, but... I'm not at all surprised that uh, another generation of folks are not as interested in partaking in this because that that seems to be the issue they're facing, right? They can't convince the, the younger folks to get involved and wrestle for a blessed talisman, bag of talisman. Yeah, that, that, is, that is the problem. They can't get enough young people involved, so it's a bunch of old men doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> is that harsh? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess it's just the truth, but that makes it an even more vivid visual here that I'd like to just get out of my head. We're going to head over to England now, and for this story, at least in the end, it was the right thing to do, but still an odd choice. A call came to the police of England dispatch to report a drunken driver, but the twist, the man called on himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't see that coming. Nope. Police in England say the drunk driver did the right thing after doing the wrong thing. Quote, man calls police to report that he is a drink driver. It is not every day this happens, end quote. And by the way, drink driver is the British term for the offense. So they didn't misspeak. That's actually how they say not a drunk driver, but a drink driver. Correct. Okay. Emergency dispatch said they received the unusual call just before noon. And the man said he, quote, doesn't know what he is doing, end quote. (laughs) What a call. According to the police, uh, the man said he had a rough weekend. When officers arrived, the man was in a van on the side of the road. The breath test revealed he was three times over the legal limit. He was arrested and held in custody. Man, that's uh, interesting that he was cognizant enough to call the emergency response team, but at the same time not recognize really what he's even saying or doing in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of not knowing what you're saying or doing in the moment, let's head off to Florida. (laughs) How's that for a transition? I like it. It is quoted as the most insane athletic showdown on earth, or at least that's how the Florida man games joke about themselves in a promotion that just ended, well, in Florida. You know, Marcus, you mentioned the story, uh, I believe, back in November when they announced the event coming up. And so it feels like a good time to bring it up again in Weird Wednesday since sure. it just happened. The games naturally poke fun of the state's reputation for bizarre stories that involve brawling, drinking, gunfire, reptile wrangling, and other antics <laughs> carrying a risk of time in jail or intensive care. There's a lot of other antics going on in Florida, <laughs> yeah. say that. The games kicked off last weekend with the Star Spangled Banner played on an electric guitar. Seems fitting. The spectators sipped canned beers behind metal barricades and cheered, along with a few swears being yelled at as well. A few as, swears? A few swears. Is a that few, how you talk? A few, well, I, a few I mean, swears were hurled? A few swears were hurled, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a few profanities, is that better? Yes, that sounds a little more, I don't know, colloquial. <laughs> Okay, profanities were were thrown about. How about Gary? That? Did you hear that swear? It was lobbed in from the stands. <laughs> I I have kids. What can I say? Don't swear. I don't think they understand if I say don't say profanities. <laughs> Anyways, uh, a dozen teams battled in contests inspired by real events from Florida. James Gordon won the first event. 
which was wolfing down a plate loaded with barbecue pork and sausage. Quote, I lived in Florida my whole life. They're calling these events. I'm calling this beep Tuesday afternoon, end quote. Cool. That's my own beep, by the way. I, <laughs> it wasn't produced in any way. <laughs> uh, was he formerly the mayor or the police chief in New York City, by the way? Just asking. Possibly. Okay. Possibly. A few other events included dueling in muddy water with an inflatable pool using weapons made from pool noodles and duct tape or wrestling sumo style while holding pitchers of beer. There was one where contestants ran from actual sheriff deputies while jumping fences and avoiding obstacles. So it's nice that the sheriffs were willing to pitch in there. Of course. Others faced a scramble to grab cash flying in a simulated hurricane winds, and there was a theft simulation relay, which competitors raced holding bicycles, copper pipes, and catalytic converters. Great. Let's glorify that theft. <laughs> Larry Donnelly managed to win that theft race, saying, quote, I have an absolute disregard for self-preservation. I will do anything. When I was in the military, I did a little alligator wrestling, end sure. quote. Sure you did. Uh, in order to watch these events, it wasn't free. There was a fee, $45 per ticket or more, uh, depending on where what your ticket included, I guess. One spectator said he and his wife traveled 180 miles to, quote, watch stupidity occur on the grandest, most spectacular scale, end quote. <laughs> Yusuf has it right here. Yep. That's the right <laughs> attitude. The organizer of the event said he expected ticket sales to exceed 5000 He didn't get everything he wanted, though, quote, there's typically drugs and nudity, but the city frowned on it when I asked for drugs and nudity, end quote. <laughs> I can't tell if that's serious or in jest coming from the Florida Man games. <laughs> I know. I, you know what? I could see him wanting to do something with that, but also knowing <laughs> that's never going to happen. <laughs> so. By the way, that's 5,000 tickets sold, not $5,000. Yes. You're saying, Correct. right? 5,000 okay. 5, tickets sold. You know what? Close to $50 a ticket. That's decent money to come out to okay. this. Yeah, we'll have to stay tuned for the second annual Florida Man Games and see if this thing grows from here. <laughs> I mean, I don't see how it can't. I mean, who doesn't want to see that, right? <laughs> Continue on with Weird Wednesday in a real life, it's a wonderful life moment. A bag of $30,000 in cash was found on the Long Island Railroad train to Ronkonkoma. New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority workers found the bag and handed it over. Detective Kristen Riker from the MTA police took on the task of finding the owner. She said, quote, I was looking through the bag to see if there was a receipt, a name. They did have a planner in the bag, and I saw this person had an appointment to get their car inspected. So I ended up contacting the mechanic, and they were able to get the ball rolling, end quote. Uh, they were able to find the person, and the person did get the bag. So it was returned, but there was no information on why the person was carrying $30,000 in cash on the train seems suspicious to me, but uh, yeah, that would have been my first thought as a police officer is who carries $30,000 in cash around. And can you explain to me why you have this cash? If you can, and it's a reasonable explanation, gladly, of course, it's your property. We'll hand it back over. But uh, that type of cash typically feels reserved for criminal enterprises it more than does. anything. It does. It seems questionable. <laughs> you know, this isn't the first time the MTA found money. Last year, $12,000 was left behind and the person contacted the MTA. The workers there went through bags and lost and found and were able to locate the bag. Uh, I'm thinking these MTA workers need a raise. If you found $30,000 in cash, I don't know if everybody would just turn that over if they'd be like, hmm, it looks like I'm $30,000 richer. 
Well, in the case of the guy who lost 12,000, at least he bothered to call in. This 30K, you got to be asking yourself, uh, one, who carries that around? But then, two, who forgets it? If I was walking around with that amount of money, I can tell you where my priorities would be, and that is securing that bag of cash until I get to my destination. I felt like an idiot. I left the restaurant last night, and I didn't grab my leftovers. I turned around and went and grabbed those back because I got halfway home like, oh, my leftovers, $30,000. That would feel even worse. Oh, my. uh, Yeah, a a lot worse. (laughs) (laughs) And naturally, we have to close out Weird Wednesday with the Guinness World Record, and this story from the GWR just doesn't seem safe to me as a toy electrical car designed for children reached a top speed of 92.24 miles per hour to break the Guinness world record. Now, when I say an electrical car, I don't mean like uh, one with a remote control you drive around. I'm talking about the ones you sit in. Okay. And you drive around. Fair enough. So I I do recall kids with those. Yes. Full grown adult in a tiny car going 92 (laughs) miles per hour. 92. Wow. Yeah, 92. It was an electrical engineer student from Germany that modified the car. Marcel Paul said he worked on it for 10 months to design it to travel at that speed. At least I like where his mind was at for this. He said his goal was for it to reach 88 miles per hour. You know, the speed needed for time travel in Back to the Future. So that was his goal. (laughs) I like this guy already. Now, to me, it just doesn't seem safe at all. Think Donkey Kong and Mario Kart and an even smaller cart and going 90 miles per hour. No, thanks. I like being alive. Yeah. Wow. That sounds insanely unsafe uh, to to get it up to that speed. And then you're wondering, presumably you have to balance the whole time to keep that toy car from flipping over or something crazy. So I mean, good on Marcel. I wouldn't attempt this again, though. No, no. I mean, at least I believe he wore a helmet while doing it, but still. Oh, good. (laughs) All those times you fall out of a moving vehicle at 92 miles per hour where a helmet (laughs) saves your life. I mean, he doesn't have a very far fall. I mean, he's basically inches from the ground, so that might help a little bit. I don't know. Well, in most accidents, you're not falling to the ground anyway, I suppose, if you're on a motorcycle or something. Yeah. yeah, Anyway. I'm not a fan. Really breaking this down more than I need to. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Taking a look at this day in history, it all has to start somewhere, and watching basketball on TV had its debut on February 28, 1940. Pittsburgh beat Fordham 57-39 at Madison Square Garden in New York. There were an estimated viewers somewhere between 400 to 1,000 when the game was covered by NBC, W2XXBS, which is now known as WNBC, or Channel 4 in New York. It was actually a doubleheader as the game was followed by number one ranked NYU as they took down Georgetown 50 to 27. Now, most people still mostly use the radio to listen to the games. In fact, the newspapers in Pittsburgh and New York listed the games that could be heard on the radio, but never even mentioned that you could catch this game on TV. And they also didn't even mention after the fact that the game was on TV, you know, with this groundbreaking event for the first time ever. Five months later, the papers finally did start mentioning that the games would appear on TV. As for that Pitt-Fordham game, it was actually closer than that 
57-37 score indicates. At halftime, it was only a five-point game as Pitt led 28-23. The Panthers went on a 14-2 run in the last eight minutes of the second half, and Fordham never recovered from that. However, Fordham <laughs> did finish the season 11-8 record. Pitt closed out 8-9, but neither team made the NCAA tournament, which was in its second year at that time. Wow, I feel like I was there. Thanks for that recap, Thank you. Do you have I the leading to... scorer? <laughs> I was just going to say, do you want the leading scorers? I, can... I think I can grab them if you want them. <laughs> <laughs> Number one ranked N. NYU, that's an interesting little tidbit. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they don't even play basketball anymore, at least not to my knowledge, and not at the Division One level. So, uh, But yeah, you're right, kind of a groundbreaking moment, and it occurred with very little fanfare, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the very first one, get a couple hundred people, maybe a thousand that watch this game, eh, they're doing good. <laughs> I'd like to know more about who the broadcasters were, the first television broadcasters. Oh, yeah, I did. And were I they talking or were they describing it like they were on the radio? Because at that time, that's all you knew where you're giving all these details. I think most people know this, but a lot of broadcasters on TV are going to refrain from describing every little thing because you can see it. So, yeah. That's a good point. I didn't uh, I didn't actually look that up or get to see the video of the broadcast. I could probably do a little more research and find that. But yeah, that is interesting to think about how they announced the game or did they just televise it? And like Randy be like, eh, we're going to bring you the whatever game and here you go. Good point. <laughs> just, yeah. With no broadcasters. For some reason, yeah. I'm picturing Marv Albert calling this game, the longtime <laughs> yeah, well. Knicks broadcaster in <laughs> well, 1940. I'm sure he was around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Little two-year-old Marv Albert. Uh... <laughs> what a visual. <laughs> two-year-old Marv Albert. Oh, he was born in 41. Shoot. <laughs> so negative one-year-old Marv Albert. Yes. <laughs> holding and holding the, uh, the mic up to the womb there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Princeton with a 15 to 2 run. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Uh, email us with your thoughts or any comments at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Also, like us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back with more cool stuff tomorrow.